Church family, I invite you to open up in your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. We're going to be looking at three verses today, verses 2, 3, and 4 of James chapter 1. I know it probably feels a little weird not to just flip to Genesis, right? Uh, it's got some uh, muscle memory going on now, just flipping right to Genesis. But uh, we are going to come back to Genesis, but we may take a little uh, pause in our study of Genesis and, um, and do a few different things uh, for our time of preaching of the Word uh, for a few weeks. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, the title of our sermon today is Meeting Trials. Meeting Trials. I'm going to read from God's Word. You follow along. Church family, this is the Word of God. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the Word of the Lord for His church today. What do you do when you meet a stranger? Well, I don't know what you do, maybe if you're a little bit older, uh, but if you're a kid, what do you do, right? You say stranger danger, right? We teach our kids, don't talk, don't get in the car with them, turn and go the other direction. And stranger comes up, that's what we do when we meet a stranger, at least when we're children. That's what we're supposed to do. What do you do when you meet a snake? What do you do? You run? <laughs> yeah. Scream? Stomp on it, maybe? Pick it up? Anybody, who picks it up? Yeah, I, 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 Thomas, I thought you were going to pick it up. Um, pick it up, yeah, maybe take it inside, do something like that. Um, I, you probably shouldn't do that. What do, you do, what do you do when you meet a famous person? Anybody ever met somebody famous? What do you do? Ask for an autograph, maybe? Ask if you can take a picture, especially these days when we carry cameras around in our, in our pockets. Hey, can I get a selfie with you real quick? Uh, maybe, maybe do that. Uh, maybe not know what to do. I don't know what to say. Um, yeah, I don't know. What about when you meet a trial? What do you do when you meet a trial? Do you get angry? Do you cry? Do you complain? Do you maybe ask God, why me? Why me? Or maybe, maybe, God, the last three or four trials was enough. But, all right, this is, this is getting a little out of hand. What do you do when you meet a trial? Our passage today, I think, helps us answer this question. What do we do when we meet trials? And here's what I think we could learn from this. That understanding trials from God's perspective will help us meet trials with joyful hope. We can understand our trials from God's perspective. Not just look at them from our perspective, but look at them from God's perspective. And I think what that will lead us to is to live with a joyful hope, even in the midst of that trial. To meet it, to, to meet it and greet it with a joyful hope. Now I know it's an interesting way to put it, meeting a trial, but that's how James puts it. He speaks about meeting trials of various kinds. James chapter 1, verse 2 says, when you meet trials, or when you face trials. This letter is most likely written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. Um, that's what everything seems to point to. At one point, James, the brother of Jesus, rejected Jesus. And we know that because 
pretty much all of Jesus' family rejected him at one point. But later, James believed in Jesus, and he became a pillar in the church in Jerusalem. And in the opening to the letter, if you'll glance your eyes back up to verse 1, he calls Jesus both his Lord and the Christ. He calls Jesus both the Lord and the Christ. And he even says that he's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's incredible. We realize that at one point in his life, he had rejected his, his brother, his half-brother, Jesus. But now he is submitting to him as Lord of his life. He believes that Jesus is the promised Messiah come to rescue his people from their sin, and therefore he is worthy of complete obedience, a servant of him, James calls himself. We also learn in the greeting to this letter that he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now these are believers. He's writing to believers. There's a few different things that this dispersion, this 12 tribes in the dispersion could refer to, but what is very clear from this statement and then from the rest of the letter is he's writing to believers. He's writing to people who have placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and are seeking to live their lives for his glory and honor. What's also very clear if we read this letter is that these Christians we could maybe today we would say they've fallen on hard times. Uh, we, we, we use that phrase sometimes. They've fallen on hard times. They are people who are meeting trials of various kinds. They are facing hard times. Some are facing mistreatment. Some are facing poverty. Some are facing the hardship of being outcasts, even like social outcasts. Some are even facing the hardship of being outcasts even within the church family, as if you continue to read, you realize that some are, are being looked down upon even within their own church family. Some are facing hurtful words, even from within their church family. Some are facing sickness. Some are facing strained relationships. And we see that all throughout the letter, these strained relationships among these people. They are Christians who are meeting trials of various kinds. And James writes this letter to help the Christians understand that genuine faith in Jesus always results in genuine works for Jesus. In other words, our actions should back up what we say that we believe. You can read about that in chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. And guess what? That holds true even when we're facing trials of various kinds. We don't get a, get a pass on serving the Lord and living for Him just because we're facing trials of various kinds. He's telling these Christians who are meeting trials of various kinds that they are to live out their faith. To put their faith into practice. And one of the ways that he calls them to put their faith into practice is by calling them to meet trials in the right way. To handle the trials in their lives in a way that honors the Lord. It's a way that they can put their faith into practice. Church, one of the ways that we show whether or not our belief in Jesus is a genuine belief in Jesus is through the way that we face the many and various trials which we meet along life's path. So what do you do when you meet a trial? I want to share with you three ways that I think James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 helps us answer that question. The first one is this. We should not be surprised by trials. We should not be surprised by trials. That snake crosses your path and you, you jump, right? Because you weren't expecting that snake to be there. Unless you walk into my shed at home, then you should expect a snake to be there because I see them all the time. And so I kind of walk in expecting that now after I've been surprised enough times. But when it comes to trials in our lives, we shouldn't be surprised. Think about it. How often do the trials in life catch us off guard? 
I mean, they, they, they seem to come out of nowhere oftentimes, right? The bad report from the doctor, the hurtful words of a family member or friend, the call to the boss's office to find that you're being let go, the, the leaky roof or the overflowing toilet, the flat tire, the unexpected doctor's bill. I mean, various kinds, like trials of all shapes and sizes. And they do often seem to come out of nowhere. However, even though we can't always, we don't know the future, we don't know what the next five minutes hold, we shouldn't be surprised when trials come our way. If we're constantly being surprised by trials in life, going, whoa, I don't, I don't, where does this come from? I can't believe that I'm facing a trial right now. It might be that we're not looking at life and therefore trials from God's perspective. Notice that James says when you meet trials of various kinds. He doesn't say, if you happen to meet a trial along life's way, he says, when you meet trials of various kinds. Friends, trials are inevitable. Uh, let me give you two, two quick reasons why we should not be surprised by trials. First of all, we live in a fallen world. That's one reason why we shouldn't be surprised by trials. We live in a fallen world. And even as Christians, our salvation does not provide us with an immediate escape from the effects of life in a fallen world. When Adam and Eve sinned, and we've spent lots of time thinking about this as we've been looking at the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, God cursed the world. And at that point, trials became a normal part of everyday life. The world has fallen from its perfect state in the Garden of Eden. And here's the thing. It's where sometimes Christians get a little confused. Just because you believe in Jesus for salvation does not mean that you get a pass on the trials of this life. Yes, as Christians, we are washed clean from the stain of sin. Yes, we enjoy fellowship with God. Yes, we have eternal life. But we still live in a world that is cursed by sin. We still feel the effects of the fall each and every day, even as believers who have been set free from sin. Don't you imagine for a moment walking around the woods all day in the middle of the summer, and then later that evening, being surprised that you have bug bites on you. What? Where did those come from? I can't believe I, can't believe I have bug bites all over me. Well, what, what would someone say? What did you do today? Well, I walked through the woods all day. And what would their next comment be? Well, what did you expect? You walked through the woods all day, and you have bug bites all over you. The woods are full of biting insects. Friends, the world we live in is full of trials. And we walk around in it all day long, every day. And Christianity is not a trial repellent. It doesn't repel trials from us so that they never affect us. They never impact our lives. That's the first reason we should not be surprised by trials. But let me give you another reason why we should not be surprised by trials. Trials are a part of God's plan for those who belong to him. Trials are a part of God's plan for those who belong to Him. He sovereignly uses the trials that face us as we live in a fallen world as part of His divine plan for our lives. Throughout these verses, what becomes very clear is that God has a purpose for the trials He walks us through. When we meet trials, it's not merely a result of living in a fallen world. It's also a result of belonging to a loving God 
A loving God who is molding us and shaping us into the people He has called us to be, who He has saved us to be. We're going to unpack this a little bit more in the next point, but I want to go ahead and mention it as a reason why we shouldn't be surprised when trials come. To give an example, it would be like a football player being surprised that his coach made him run 10 wind sprints when the player told his coach, well, I can only run eight. That's as much as I can handle. And the coach says, all right, I want you to run 10. Well, we shouldn't be surprised by that. The player shouldn't be surprised by that. Why? Because the coach is putting things in the practice that's going to make that player stronger, not leave him where he's at. Even if those things are hard and sometimes seem impossible. So trials are a part of life in a fallen world, and trials are a part of God's plan for our lives. Obviously, if sin had never entered the world, then trials would not have been a part of God's plan for our lives. But when sin entered the world, we now live in a world full of trials, but praise God that in His sovereignty, He's even able to use the trials in our lives to strengthen our faith in Him. So what should we do when we meet a trial? Well, first, we shouldn't be surprised, okay? shouldn't be surprised. I'm not saying things may not catch us off guard because we don't know the future, but there needs to be, as soon as that trial hits, we need to to work with the Holy Spirit in our lives, training ourselves to not just be shocked, but to go, that's life in a fallen world, and praise God, he can use this trial to make me a better follower of Jesus. And that's what we see next. All right, so first, we shouldn't be surprised by trials. Second thing we learn in, this, in these verses about the trials in our lives, what we should do when we meet trials, is this. We should view trials as an opportunity. We should view trials as an opportunity. Now, this isn't just like a positive self-help kind of speech that I'm giving here, okay? I could just stand up and say, well, you know, we should just have a good, at, just have a good outlook on life. Just be positive about everything, and things will, it'll, it's, it's, it'll, turn out, it'll turn out good in the end. That's, that's, I can't stand up here and say that because that's hogwash, and God's called me to be a preacher of his word, and that doesn't come from his word, okay? Um, but I want you to see how we can view trials as opportunities. One of the things James does right from the start in this letter to suffering Christians is he tries to reverse their perspective on trials. They're most likely viewing all the trials in their lives the same way that we often view the trials in our lives, only as something negative. The trials were an inconvenience, right? Trials were exhausting. The trials were annoying. The trials were painful. And they may have been those things, but James counters this negative outlook on trials and speaks about them not as meaningless annoyances, but as purposeful tools in the hands of our gracious God. Now, I think if we let James help us view our trials from God's perspective, we're going to view them as opportunities. Let me give you you four opportunities that trials provide in our lives as Christians, okay? Four opportunities. The first is this. Trials provide us with, with an opportunity to practice our faith. Remember what I said, the whole point of James's letter in the first place is to call the Christians to put their faith into practice. Well, trials are one way that we can put our faith into practice. In verse 3, James says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Note that phrase, testing of your faith. Verse 2, he calls them trials of various kinds. And then in verse 3, he calls it the testing of your faith. In other words, God views trials, not 
merely as annoying, inconvenient, difficult circumstances, which is how we often view them, but God views trials as faith-testing circumstances. Faith-testing circumstances. And whenever we as Christians face faith-testing circumstances, we are being provided with an opportunity to practice our faith, which is always, always a good thing. It's interesting, to say the least, how, how much we like to call ourselves, and I am including myself in this more than anybody else, how often we like to call ourselves people of faith and say that we have faith in Jesus and say we're thankful that our faith is in Jesus, but when it comes to actually walking by faith, we would rather God just pick somebody else for that task today right? I'm very convicted. I've been convicted even recently about this, where I'm like, God, I talk about how much my faith is in you, but then when I have an opportunity to actually walk by faith, I'm like, can we get a little easier path, God? Can you just go ahead and tell me what tomorrow holds instead of making me trust you with tomorrow? We're like the, the farmer who's been given a new tractor and then complains about having to go cut the field, and don't you think he should say, yeah, it's hot and dusty outside, but man, I'm so glad I have an opportunity to use this new tractor that's been given to me. I wonder how often we who have been given the gift of saving faith by God himself, how often we meet a trial and then just complain about the trial instead of saying, yeah, this trial is going to be hard. Not living out in la-la land. This is, this, this is hard. This is hard. But I'm so thankful to be able to practice my faith that God has given to me. I'm so thankful to be able to walk through this trial with faith in Jesus. It's not just that we get to practice our faith, but that the practice of faith, the practice of completely depending upon the goodness and sovereignty and provision of God. That's what it means to walk by faith, to completely depend upon the goodness, the sovereignty, and the provision of God in our lives. It actually strengthens our faith. It doesn't leave us where we were at. As we'll see in just a moment, we're actually left better off in our relationship with God for having walked through that trial by faith. So trials provide us with an opportunity to practice our faith. That's the first opportunity. Second opportunity that comes with trials. Trials provide us with an opportunity to experience God's grace. Trials provide us with an opportunity to experience God's grace. I want you to notice the progression in these verses. Trials test our faith, and the testing of our faith produces something. It produces steadfastness, or you could say perseverance, or endurance in the faith. It produces that steadfastness. Let me ask you, do you want to remain steadfast in your faith? Christian, do you want to persevere in your faith? I think, I pray, if we're believers, we're going to say, yes, absolutely. I want to remain steadfast to the end. Do you want to keep trusting in Jesus or do you want to fall away from Christ? I think we would all say, I want to keep trusting him. I want to keep walking with Jesus. Do you want to be like the fertile soil in Jesus' parable or the sower which produced fruit? Or do you want to be like the rocky soil or the thorny soil which kind of looked like it was good to begin with, but then as soon as trials and tribulations came, there's no more fruit. And Jesus told that parable to make the point that it's only those who continue to produce the fruit of faith who are really citizens of his heavenly kingdom. doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. doesn't mean we don't sin. We take those sins to the Lord and confess. But we will see through the course of our lives continuation of producing fruit for the kingdom. 
If we belong to the kingdom. If you're a Christian, then of course you want to keep producing fruit. I mean, that's kind of a dumb question for me to ask. I know that you do. Of course you want to keep enduring in your faith to the end. And James is saying that trials produce that. Trials produce that steadfastness. Trials actually help strengthen our faith so that we'll keep trusting in Jesus and keep producing fruit and keep persevering to the end. You say, where does grace fit into that? I'll see the word grace in these verses. Let me just ask you a couple questions. Friend, how were you saved? It's by God's grace. How are you being saved right now? Like, how is God continuing to hold on to you? It's by His grace. How will you finally one day be saved? How will you make it into God's heavenly kingdom? By God's grace. And so if the steadfastness produced by trials is actually a part of God's process of saving us, that means getting us to where He wants us, if it's one of the ways He ensures that we continually to, continue to faithfully produce fruit in our lives, if it's one of the measures that He uses in a fallen world to keep a hold onto us and not let us go, And trials are an opportunity for us to experience God's grace. Let me put it this way. There's no saving faith apart from God's grace. And so trials can't be an opportunity to practice our faith, which is what we just said it is, unless it's also an opportunity to experience the grace of God. Remember, grace is unmerited favor. Grace is getting something good you don't deserve. The church, steadfastness in the faith is nothing short of a blessing from God. We don't deserve it, and thus it is grace. Let me, let me, let me insert a, a, a point of application here, okay? Lots of application. Let me insert one, one point of application. If trials are, if, if I'm interpreting this right and we're thinking through this passage right, if trials are an opportunity to experience God's grace, then I wonder if the way we often pray for someone who is facing a trial reveals a lack of understanding of God's purpose for trials in our lives. For instance, if God answered all our prayers for brothers and sisters in Christ who are facing trials, it might be that no one would ever get to experience God's grace in this way because our prayers are often only concerned with that trial ending. Right? Am I right? Our, trails, our, our prayers are pretty much always focused on when it comes to praying for somebody that's going through a trial on getting them out of that trial as quickly as possible. God, please help so-and-so to get better now. God, please help so-and-so to be cancer-free when she goes to the doctor. God, please help so-and-so to, to not lose her grandmother or daddy or child. God, please help so-and-so to not lose his job or lose her job. Listen, I'm not saying... Those are bad things to pray. We, want, we make, our requests, make our requests known to God. We lay them at his feet humbly, realizing that he is sovereign. We want his will to be done. But it's not wrong to, to tell God those things. God, I want this family member to get better. God, that's, that's, what's, that's what's going on in my heart right now. I, will, I would love to see them healed. It's not wrong to pray those things. 
But if that's all we pray, then we might be praying that person out of experiencing God's grace. We might be praying that person out of an opportunity to practice faith and grow in faith. Maybe we should also pray for endurance and faith and steadfastness and a humble spirit to learn all God wants to teach that person through the trial. And one more thing, that doesn't just apply to our prayers for others. It also applies to our prayers for ourselves. God, get me out of this situation quick. God, end this trial right now. That's what what we pray so often. Church, don't pray yourself out of experiencing God's grace in your life through trials. I don't mean you, you go and you pray for God to just dump a bunch of trials in your life today. I don't mean that you say, God, I hope that you keep this trial going for forever and ever. I don't mean that. But let's not forget to say, God, as long as you have me in this trial, God, as long as you have my husband, my wife, my child, my grandmother, my grandfather, my brother or sister in Christ, my friend, as long as you have them, as long as you have me in this trial, help, help them, help me to experience your grace. Help them to endure well and strengthen their faith in the midst of it. Third opportunity trials provide is this. Trials provide us with an opportunity to prepare for heaven. Trials provide us with an opportunity to prepare for heaven. Now before I tell you what I mean by this, let me, let me tell you what I don't mean, okay? I don't mean that heaven will be full of trials. And so trials on earth are helping us to get ready to face all the trials that are coming in heaven. That's not what I mean, okay? No. Look at verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Listen, heaven is going to be a place that's free of trials, and it's a place where we are perfect. And God completes that salvation in us. So brothers and sisters, if God has saved you, then he is continuing to do a work of salvation in your life. He is right now. He's constantly at work maturing you in your faith, pushing out sin and replacing that sin with holiness, the righteousness of Christ in practice. And just as Jesus left earth to go back to his Father in heaven where he says, I love this verse, I know you do from John chapter uh, 14, just as Jesus left this earth to go back to heaven where he says he's preparing a place for us, and we love those words. As certain as that is, that he has gone to prepare a place for us, he has also sent his Holy Spirit into our hearts to prepare us for that place. That's what he's doing in our lives right now. He's getting us ready for our heavenly home. How is he doing that? Well, the Holy Spirit is helping us apply God's word, his word, to our lives as a purifying agent. So that we'll one day be a spotless bride ready to marry our eternal bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. And according to James, one of the ways God is doing this, he's getting us ready, is through the trials in our lives. James says that the trials are leading us to perfection and completion. And ultimately that perfection and completion of our salvation is going to take place as we Finish meeting trials and meet Jesus face to face. The meeting the trials are going to be over. And we're going to get to meet our Savior face to face. That's when that 
perfection and completion finally comes to fruition in our lives as we step into that heavenly dwelling place that God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is preparing for us. But again, how often do we fight against this purifying work in our lives by spending all our energy trying to escape from the trial instead of asking, God, how are you preparing me for heaven through this trial? God, what sin are you exposing in my life through this trial? God, what worldly thing am I clinging to? And you're using this trial because you're taking that thing away from me right now. And you're exposing that I'm actually depending upon this thing or this person rather than on you. And you're getting that. You're you're teaching me by removing that thing that all I need is you. And that's all I'm going to have for all of eternity. And you're getting me ready for heaven. God, what act of obedience, what act of service are you leading me to through this trial? If trials are preparing for us for heaven, the way we walk through trials, unfortunately, often makes it look like we, we don't want to go to heaven. We don't want to be prepared for that place. Brothers and sisters in Christ, may the Word of God chastise us. As we hear James say in this passage, let steadfastness have its full effect right? (laughs) Let it run its course. Let it have its full effect. Let me do, God's saying, what I want to do in your life through this trial. We don't want to work against God. And sometimes, if the only thing we're focused on is ending the trial, we might be working against what the Lord is wanting to do. Instead of, again, asking God, what are you doing through this? Again, that doesn't mean we go looking for trials, okay? It doesn't mean we go, well, let's see what kind of trouble I can get myself into today. It doesn't mean that. Well, you know what? I'm, I, I know the tires on my vehicle are about to pop, but I'm not going to change them so that I can go through a trial and have a flat tire on the side of the road today. That's not, what it's, that's not what we're talking about, okay? We don't have to go looking for trials. Listen, we don't need to go looking for trials. There are enough that come looking for us, right? For the sake of the purifying work of Christ, may we trust God enough to let Him do in us whatever He wants to do through whatever trial we meet for however long He wants to do that work in us. May we be eager participants in God's sanctifying work in our lives even when that work of sanctification comes through trials. I know it might be tempting to think that we're walking through hell when we walk through the trials of life. But listen, for the Christian, our trials are actually preparing us for heaven. And church family, this is only possible because there was a trial which could be described as a walk through hell. And that trial was not endured by you or by me. That trial was endured by the Son of God. For you and for me. He took our sin and the consequences of our sin, which is what hell is, upon Himself. He endured the wrath of God so that we who believe in Jesus could be placed on the path that leads to heaven so that our trials now are preparing us for something far better than we ever deserve. And that leads us to the fourth opportunity that our trials provide. I told you I want to give you four opportunities, okay? Trials provide us, number four, with an opportunity, opportunity to display the hope found in Jesus. 
Trials provide us with an opportunity to display the hope found in Jesus. How in the world, how in the world could we view cancer or a pink slip or an unexpected bill or a flat tire or a child falling in the mud on the way to school pictures, right? Trials of life or, an, or infertility or a strained relationship or even the death of a loved one, how in the world? I mean, that seems kind of weird, to put it kindly, to say that we could view those things as opportunities. Well, it's all because our hope is not found in our circumstances of this life. Our hope is not found in the hope that our circumstances in this life will get better. Our hope is not found in the alleviation of pain this side of heaven. Our hope is not found in an escape from the trials of life this side of heaven. Our hope is in Jesus Jesus paid the price for our sin through His death on the cross and He rose up from the grave securing our future resurrection. Which means that if we belong to Jesus, then the trials of this life pale in comparison to the future hope that is waiting for us as believers in Christ. Our hope is not in the trials disappearing. Please hear me that. Hear, hear that, what I'm saying. Our, our hope is not in the disappearance of trials in this life. But our hope is in the Son of God appearing one day on the clouds of glory to take us to His home to live with Him forever and ever in that place where there is no more sorrow or suffering and tears or trials of various kinds. When we face trials with this perspective, not only are we doing so because our hope is in Jesus, we're actually getting to display this hope to others who are watching us walk through the trials of life. It's amazing. It's part of the mission of God for us that even the trials that we walk through could be used to draw other people into a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I think all of us would love, all of us who are believers in Christ would love for a lost person to, to walk up and ask, hey, can you tell me about the hope that you have? Can you tell me about that hope that I see in you? Where does it come from and how can I have it? We would love for a lost person to walk up to us and, and ask us those questions because we would love for an opportunity to share the hope that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, trials are one of the ways that God provides us with that opportunity to display to a lost world that our hope is found in Jesus. It's not found in this life. The money can be taken away. The job can be taken away. The house can be destroyed. The doctor can give bad news. The coroner can come knocking. But nothing can steal our eternal hope that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. For I'm sure of this, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor heights nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, the Apostle Paul says, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Trials provide us with an opportunity to display that eternal hope with the world around us. Now, if you don't know this hope today, then I want you to know that you can. The Bible says that you're a sinner just like I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. We're born into the world that way. But God still loves you. 
Even in your sin so much that he sent his only son to take the price for your sin. You've heard me say that already a couple of times today. And he did that so that everyone who would repent, that means turn from their sins and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation, could be forgiven. And you have that hope of eternal life placed within you. And it's not a, it's not a, a wishy kind of hope. I hope this happens. It's a guaranteed hope. This is going to happen because Christ has paid the price for sin and he has risen from the dead. So if you've never trusted in Christ today, if you don't have that hope, then you can. I encourage you even right now to tell the Lord that you are a sinner and that you need Jesus to save you and that you trust in him to do that work of salvation in your heart and life. Only once you place your faith in Jesus are you saved and only then will you be able to face these trials in the way that we're talking about, facing them in such a way that the trials become an actual display of the gospel, a display of the hope that is found in Jesus. But church family, there's one very practical thing which can stand in the way of our trials pointing other people to Jesus. And that's the manner in which we endure the trial. It's the, it's the attitude, it's the disposition with which we walk through that trial. We should not be surprised by trials. We should view trials as an opportunity. But then third, we should endure the trials with joy. All of this is for naught. Viewing the trials and even experiencing the trials in our lives as opportunities, even for displaying the hope found in Jesus, is all for naught if we don't walk through that trial with joy. Now, save this for the end. It's really where James begins these verses. We kind of skipped it. I don't normally do that, but, but I wanted to hold it to the end. Count it all joy, James says. And then he gives us all that we've been studying. Count it all joy. Not when the trial ends, but when you meet it. When you meet it on life's path, what do you do? Count it all joy. God's Word tells us. Church, the only way our trials become opportunities for us to display that our hope is in Jesus is if we count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. We should and we must and we can, through Christ, endure trials with joy. When we face trials with joy, here's what happens. Jesus steals the show. He does. When we face trials with joy, with our hope being found in Christ, Jesus steals the show. But when we face trials with complaining, negative attitudes, we direct all the attention to ourselves. What does it mean to have joy in the midst of trials? I don't think it means that we pretend like trials are easy. Nope. I don't think it means that we put on a fake smile and pretend like all is well in our lives. It's not what it means to endure trials with joy. I don't think it means that we walk through the trial with some kind of arrogant stoicism, like pretending like, oh, I'm so strong, nothing affects me, nothing, nothing hurts me. Nope, that's not what it means to walk through trials with joy. 
Friends, we can admit that trials are hard. We can admit that we feel weak. We can admit that we need help in the midst of, a, of our trials. In fact, we ought to do those things. The call to joy in the midst of trials does not mean we ignore the reality and the difficulty of the trials that we face. But it does mean that we walk through the trials rejoicing, even sometimes through tears and lots of tears that Jesus is our Savior and Lord, that God is doing a work of salvation in us that only He can do, that we are recipients of His grace, not just sometime back in the past, but even right now, He is showering us with His grace, that He is preparing us for heaven, and that our faith is in Christ no matter what happens. To count it all joy means that our eyes are fixed on Jesus, and our heavenly citizenship is more important to us than anything this earth has to offer. To count it all joy means that we would rather point people to Jesus in the midst of our trial than find a quick escape from our trial. To count it all joy means that we embrace the trials as the opportunities that they are rather than merely inconvenient annoyances. To count it all joy means that we spend more time talking about the blessings of God which are ours in Christ than we do complaining about the difficulty of the trials we are facing. Church family, to count it all joy means we are understanding our trials from God's perspective and therefore putting our faith into practice in the midst of that trial. Let me ask you a question. What will you do when you meet trials of various kinds? What will you do? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, you, your word is full of the truth. That life in this world is hard. Any, any effort to sugarcoat the trials of our lives is an effort to walk away from the truth of your word. God, life in a fallen world is difficult. And our salvation does not remove those trials from us this side of heaven. But God, our salvation does infuse us with a hope that goes beyond the trials that we're facing. With a joy that can endure through the trials that we are facing. doesn't mean that life is not hard. It doesn't mean that we don't feel weak and often helpless and wonder what's going to happen next. It doesn't mean that sometimes we, we feel our fill our pillow with tears at night because of difficulties of things that are going on in our lives. But God, it does mean that you are a God who is over all of those trials. You are using those trials in the lives of your children to strengthen our faith in you and get us ready for that day when the trials are no more. And so God, in the light of the truth of your word, may we face these trials. May we meet these trials with a humble joy. A joy in knowing that our eternity is secure in Christ. A joy in knowing that you are 
still at work in us and even using these trials to accomplish your purpose in our lives. That you're using these trials to point other people to Jesus as we endure them in a way that brings you honor and glory, in a way that reflects that our hope is not found in alleviation of trials in this life, but our hope is found in Jesus, who gives us a hope that reaches beyond the grave. And I don't know what you're doing in everyone's heart and life today, but Lord, I pray that as we sing in just a moment, someone needs to just to sit and spend some time just praying to you, maybe pouring out their heart to you and the trials that they're facing. Lord, I pray that they would do that. Or someone needs to just bow their heads and say, God, I don't have the hope of Jesus and I want to trust in Jesus, my Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray that they would, in, this, in these next few moments, confess their sin to you and trust in the Lord Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And God, as those of us who are ready to sing, Lord, as we lift our voices to you, may you be honored and glorified that even, even today, there will be people that are walking through trials right now in this place and yet would still lift their voices and praise to you and say, God, you are good and I am trusting you. Fill me with the joy of Jesus. Now that's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.